0: Welcome to The Green Investor, powered by Investopedia. I'm Caleb Silver, the Editor-in-Chief of Investopedia, and your guide and fellow traveler on our journey into what it means to be a green investor today and where this investing theme is headed in the future. On this week's show, don't call it a comeback, at least not yet, But renewable energy stocks and ETFs are on the move up and to the right. The passage of the Inflation Reduction Act and an uptick in the broader stock market has brought green energy stocks back to life, and the money is spreading into private companies as well. We'll name some names. And speaking of naming names, we'll hear from one of the top former leaders of sustainability investing in the industry who dropped it all, dropped out, and dropped a multi-part essay on why the sustainable investing industry is a fraud. Tarek Fancy joins the show for an explosive interview. But first and always, this podcast is for informational and educational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. We will not make recommendations to buy, sell, or hold a particular security or asset, although we may discuss financial products with our guests. Some of our guests may invest in securities mentioned on this podcast, and some of our guests may sell or market securities mentioned on this podcast, but all listeners should do their own research or consult with their financial advisor or broker before making any investment decisions. The passage of the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022 has strengthened the green wave of returns over renewable energy stocks. After a very rough start to the year amid a surge in oil and energy stocks, renewables are climbing their way back amid more enthusiasm and spending headed into the sector and an overall rise across the U.S. equity market. Of the big exchange-traded funds we track on the show, the big got bigger and their gains grew along with their assets under management. The iShares Global Clean Energy ETF ticker ICLN is up 31.7% in the past three months, with most of those gains coming in the past month. The First Trust Nasdaq Clean Edge Green Energy Index Fund ticker QCLN is up 34.2% in the past three months, and the Invesco Solar ETF ticker TAN, T-A-N is up 41.8% over the same time period, all of this according to our friends at YCharts. Those gains are far outpacing the broader market, and solar and wind stocks have been among the leaders in the sector. Investor enthusiasm for green energy projects is also coming back into the private markets. Climate tech funding peaked at $40 billion in 2021, but the well ran dry in the first half of this year. Venture capital deals for climate tech fell 23% in the first quarter, according to ctvc.com. But there are strong signs that venture investment is coming back to the sector. Since the start of 2021, 72 climate venture funds totaling $13 billion and six growth funds totaling $24 billion have been announced, which leaves about $20 billion in dry powder waiting to be invested, according to CTVC. While recent deals have been concentrated in the U.S. among transportation, energy, food, and land use companies, the deal size has been slightly smaller than it was last year. But here are a few of the private companies that took in some real money in the past few weeks. Afresh, a San Francisco, California-based company developing food technology that prevents food waste, raised $115 million in funding from Spark Capital, among other investors. Why Tricity Corporation? a Waterton, Massachusetts-based EV charging startup, raised $63 million from Siemens AG, among other backers, and Orange EV, a Riverside, Missouri-based EV manufacturer which specializes in industrial trucks, raised $35 million in funding from S2G Ventures and CC Industries. Will any of these companies go on to be the next hot climate tech IPOs to go public? Time will tell. Let's dig into some headlines, and extreme heat tops the news yet again. The U.S. Bureau of Reclamations, which controls hundreds of dams and hydro projects throughout the country, announced this week that both Arizona and Nevada will face more cuts to their water supplies this summer that's due to the extreme drought in the American Southwest that is greatly reducing the amount of water flowing through the Colorado River. The Bureau, which is the largest wholesaler of water in the country, says Lake Mead, the largest U.S. reservoir, will have less water than it previously anticipated. Lake Mead is currently less than a quarter full, and the seven states overall that depend on its water missed a federal deadline to announce proposals on plans to cut additional water usage next year. The Colorado River provides water to 40 million people across seven states in the American West, as well as Mexico, and helps feed an agricultural and industry valued at 15 billion dollars per year. If you think it's hot now, fast forward to the year 2053. That's when forecasters from First Street Foundation, which is a nonprofit that studies climate risks, says the heat index will exceed 125 degrees Fahrenheit across an extreme heat belt through a swath of the United States. In a recent report, First Street said its forecast, which it assembles using National Weather Service data and other publicly available data, says the heat index in 30 years will easily cross the threshold of, quote, extreme danger. The heat belt is expected to impact about 8 million people this year and will grow to impact about 107 million people. In the year 2053 which is an increase of 13 times over those 30 years that belt will include a huge swath of the country that includes the southeast and areas just west of the appalachian mountains stretching from texas and louisiana all the way up through missouri and iowa to the wisconsin border along with the report first street has released a very cool web tool that lets users search us addresses to determine their heat risk we'll link to it in the show notes if you think you're hearing more about lightning strikes causing fatal harm these days You're not wrong. And climate warming may be to blame. Climate scientists at Washington State University say warming temperatures are producing more thunderstorms, which means more lightning and potentially more fatalities. Of the 25 million lightning strikes that occur in the U.S. every year, only 3,000 of those strike people with only 20 victims dying as a result. It happened just a few weeks ago right outside the White House, but occurrences are becoming more frequent and are likely to stay that way. Climate change is making the air warmer, which allows it to hold more moisture, and both of those factors can boost the chance of thunderstorms. One major study from 2014 estimated that if warming continues at its current pace, the number of lightning strikes in the US could increase by as much as 50% by the end of the century, with each additional one degree Celsius of warming generating about 12% more strikes. Climate scientists are far more concerned, though, with lightning's ability to start wildfires than with people being struck by lightning. Between 1992 and 2015, more than 40% of the wildfires in the West were caused by lightning, according to the U.S. Forest Service. And in 2020, California experienced a barrage of 15,000 lightning strikes just over a few days, igniting more than 600 fires that burned more than 2 million acres and destroyed thousands of homes and buildings. Lightning is also the cause of at least eight active wildfires in Northern California today, according to the Forest Service. Chicago's airports, libraries, and water purification plants will soon be running on 100% clean energy thanks to a deal announced by Mayor Lori Lightfoot to shift all citywide operations to renewable sources by the year 2025, making Chicago one of the largest U.S. metropolises to pledge such a move. The city signed an energy supply agreement with retail electricity supplier Constellation with an initial five-year term beginning in January 2023, according to the mayor's office. The agreement will also allow Chicago to partially source its energy needs from a solar project that's currently being developed by Swift Current Energy. The mayor's office did not disclose how much power city is buying or how much it is paying for it. If you've been following this podcast and the news around ESG and sustainable investing lately, you'll know that this investing theme is under attack. Regulators like the SEC are clamping down on greenwashing among companies and funds. Investors are doubting the efficacy of ESG and SRI investing. Special interest groups are decrying the premise behind the entire concept of sustainable investing. Ratings agencies are being attacked for what they are and what they aren't measuring, and industry insiders are coming out against the financial services industry for packaging and selling an investing illusion, all wrapped up in shiny green paper with a pretty little bow on top. One of those insiders went very public with his criticisms of the industry after leaving his job as the chief investment officer of sustainable investing for the largest asset manager on the planet. That's BlackRock. He then wrote a lengthy four-part essay and published it on Medium.com to explain the hypocrisies of sustainable investing and why he couldn't abet it anymore. That insider is Tarek Fancy, and he is our guest this week on The Green Investor. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Tark, you were at the top of the industry, the CEO of BlackRock and arguably its most high-profile product area. You were riding private jets with the chairman and CEO, Larry Fink. You were talking to world leaders and the largest investors in the world. One would think that you were in the ideal position to shape this industry in a way that really leads to change. Why did you leave? I
1: left because I first came to the conclusion that it wasn't helping very much at all. I went in, obviously, and joined the firm in this role, having drank the Kool-Aid and believing what we all want to believe, which is that there's a win-win fantasy where we can keep the status quo the way it is and solve all of our long-term threats that science is telling us to address. I found fairly quickly that it was less of a interesting role and more of a, almost felt like a marketing role and that didn't have a lot of impact. But, you know, what really changed for me was after I left and I started to realize, actually, this is not just not helpful or harmless. It's actually actively harmful because it presents what I call a dangerous placebo that harms the public interest. It's this fantasy that we can leave things the way they are and that suddenly this magical new area of ESG stuff will appear, data tools, standards, and that will mean that we protect the environment, which of course is not what any of our experts are saying. They need, they're saying we need systemic regulations in place by government. And you know, I realize that the longer that we put all our stock as a society and ideas like this that don't work, we not only amplify the costs of inaction, We also transfer them. We transfer them to the youngest, the poorest, and the darkest skinned people on the planet who are going to disproportionately bear the consequences of inaction on climate change in particular. And that was something that I thought needed to be subject to a public debate. That was my goal in going public.
0: So that's probably what brought you to write the essay. You could have easily stepped away, returned to Rumi, the company, the online learning platform that you created where you are now again. And we'll talk about that in a little while. Why did you go so public?
1: In large part, it was because of the work I did at Rumi, right? I mean, I spent a long career in finance first as a banker in Silicon Valley and the group that did the IPOs of Amazon and Google, Cisco. And I eventually, after the dot-com bubble crash, went into what's called distressed or vulture investing and sort of the lion's share of my career as an investor on that side of things. Very, very sharp elbowed, very, very aggressive. And that sort of is a mentality where you cut through the bullshit pretty quickly because you know, in a distressed situation, there's a lot of BS going around and fanciful stories, no pun intended. At some point I switched and started Rumi. It was a very personal story around my friend of mine from business school who passed away of cancer, and I decided to, to follow a path I had been thinking about for years and build a digital nonprofit that was something I was deeply passionate about. is a 501c3, a charity. I worked for three years for no salary to get it off the ground. And in my kind of early, mid-30s, it was an odd career choice, but it was one that I really deeply cared about. And the intersection of having worked on the extremes of profit on one side and a sharp Paul boot hedge fund and purpose on the other side of running a digital nonprofit that helps people learn and build themselves, that spread is not very common, frankly. And that was one of the things that led me to be considered for this role as sort of an investor leading the ESG part of things, right? The sustainable investing part of things. And when I started to realize that this was largely marketing that was feel good stuff that was ultimately not going to work and it was going to benefit a lot of disadvantaged communities, it was really the fact that i left years earlier to do room where I said, listen, like I've made my decision. Like I'm a capitalist. I believe that investing can bring great value to society. I think that the financial services industry can do as much, but not the way it's being done right now. I decided, look, yeah, I was going to ruffle a few feathers, but that's not my personality. I don't really care. If they don't have a good argument to come back, we live in a marketplace of ideas and that should be exposed so that as a society, we can make better decisions.
0: Yeah. And you do invite the industry to reply, to get into the conversation with you through your essays, which are super provocative, very personal. You're talking about also individuals you worked with, some of them very high profile. It's not like you tried to do this under the radar. You name names here in this, but let's talk about what you see as the inherent problems with sustainable and responsible investing from the industry perspective. You said there's a lot of marketing money, put it this, this is one of the greatest marketing efforts probably in the last two decades that we've seen in the industry. We know assets under management and these themes are, $10 trillion, $12 trillion, growing every year. It's always talked about by the industry how more and more investors, especially young ones, want to get into this investing theme. But you have trouble with it from that product side all the way through to the marketing side.
1: First thing you need to do when you look at sustainable investing is kind of define it because it's sort of all things to all people and it's quite murky. So I would say the simplest way to look at it is, let's take BlackRock as an example. It's, it's two things, right? BlackRock is a firm that last year hit 10 trillion in assets I think they're below that now but it's a giant investment firm so let's just say there's 10 trillion of assets the first thing that ESG and sustainable investing is about is trying to integrate ESG considerations and factors just like any other new data set or set of parameters to think about into that 10 trillion now The idea behind that is that by looking at ESG information, you will become a better investor. By the way, footnote, you have to say that because as an investor, you're bound by a legal obligation to only focus on returns. So you have to say, I'm looking at ESG and it's great for the world and good ESG companies perform better. So this is a wonderful win-win, right? Where we reward the better companies because they're more profitable, more capital goes to them. That's one half of the equation. So the first one is process enhancement. It's not a product. It's just existing processes that are being upgraded. The second one is this giant growing category of sustainable investment products. And at BlackRock, the latest public disclosure, I said, was that that's about half a trillion or 500 billion of the close to 10 trillion. Now, that is one of the fastest growing categories. And if I were to summarize my complaints about sustainable investing as practiced today, It's on both halves of those, right? On the ESG integration bit, or this sort of idea that you can enhance your process with better returns, first of all, most of what asset management firms are actually doing is just paper. They make non-binding commitments that we will look at ESG stuff as we're looking to invest. And there's this ludicrous fantasy in the space that that is going to create some real world impact or at a minimum, better investment returns. I saw neither of those things. It doesn't it create better investment returns. I mean, in a few areas, there's a kernel of truth to that, but it's highly dependent on the specifics. If I'm investing in a company and they're in California or they're in China, then whether or not they have an animal rights controversy may or may not matter. It probably matters in California. I don't know that it matters that much today in China. If you're a company and you're looking at a carbon footprint, like it matters what sector they're in. If they're a bank, the S and G probably matter more. If your natural resources company is E... As you get into the details, it's very intricate. And there's a few kernels of truth, but most of them have been blown out of proportion. And what I saw, actually, this is going to surprise, maybe it'll surprise people, maybe it won't, is that generally speaking, for a lot of companies, being irresponsible actually is more profitable. So if you're Mark Zuckerberg, the responsible thing might to do would probably be not addicting young people to mental health, destroying social media, and increasing suicide rates and creating mental health issues so you can hack their attention and sell them ads, yet probably not the decisions Facebook's going to make. Otherwise, the entire structure of it is legally financially incentivized to squeeze out profits so they'll keep doing it. And in any kind of competitive endeavor, you always have rules and referees. We know that with sports. Couldn't have any kind of sport without referees and rules. Same thing with capitalism. You have rules and you have referees that are regulators. And it just struck me again and again that I looked at it and I said, the incentives of the system are not to do the right thing from an ESG perspective for society. It's actually very often do the wrong thing. So the ESG integration bit was a lot of marketing and it was really frankly misleading. And then the new products, done to me is that the vast majority of them can't show any real world impact being created. The majority of them are just funds that take public secondary shares that are already traded in markets and they just give different baskets of them to people because they figure out, well, wait a second, I can sell two commoditized ETF passive products. But with one of them, if I have a few more green things in there, a socially conscious investor will pay me higher fees to invest in it. Now That's a great opportunity. But ultimately, the divergence here is that the person paying more in fees for that ESG fund almost always believes That they're doing something for the world by doing that, something good's going to happen. More capital is going to more responsible companies, so on and so forth. In reality, the way secondary markets work, all you're really doing is taking a slightly different basket and using it to charge responsible people more. But nothing in the real world changes; you're just moving money around.
0: Let's get into that one because that's super important. The way that a lot of investors, individual investors are exposed to this theme or get exposure to this theme is through ETFs, exchange traded funds, which are baskets of stocks or through index funds, which again are baskets of stocks or mutual funds. Your point is that these are on the secondary market. They're not directly investing in these companies. They're investing in the packaged version of this basket of companies. Yes, there's creation, redemption in ETFs, and there's additions and subtractions in funds, but they're really not putting the money into the company for the purposes of reducing climate change or improving governance or improving social action. And that's a key point because otherwise, how are investors supposed to get access to these types of companies or or to try to make change with their money?
1: It's very difficult. I mean, I think that investors can very often create impact, but it's often through private vehicles that provide fresh primary funding like a climate tech VC. I mean, there's what people in the impact space call additionality. Their additionality is as simple as it sounds. It's the principle of something additional happening because of what you've done. There are vehicles that can make sense, but the vast majority of the ESG space are things that don't change anything in the real world. Ultimately, they're pretty cynical ploys to get people to exploit the social angst behind society's, frankly, growing failures to address not just climate change, but inequality and a set of other issues that hurt political stability. The funny thing about these products is that theory of change behind them is based around the theory of change of divestment. In some part, the climate activist movement has to bear some responsibility for pushing divestment as a solution. Divestment is the stupidest way to drive real world impact that I've ever seen. It's basically cancel culture meets financial markets, right? It's like, hey, if I don't own this stock. They will not have capital. That doesn't make any sense because it's a secondary shares traded on the market. So for you to sell the share, mission someone else has to buy it, probably some hedge fund that doesn't give a shit, whether it's a responsible company or not. And ultimately, it just allows companies to keep doing what they're doing with a different shareholder base. And somehow that in the climate activist space where, unfortunately, there's a dearth of people with financial backgrounds that somehow became this idea that like, you can address climate change by selling your shares as a fossil filmmaker even though Calper and all has said in the past that they think they lost fifty million or something by divesting of tobacco in the nineties, people still smoke. Like all you do is just step aside, and it still keeps happening. And I think a lot of products got built off that idea that you own less of something in the public secondary markets that so you create impact. In reality, you don't, and you don't really change the incentives or the behavior of any of the companies.
0: Well, there you were, Tark, at BlackRock, which is the biggest asset manager on the planet, where they are actively invested in companies and could push for change, could push for shareholder resolutions, could use their shareholder power and their enormous size to push through shareholder resolutions. And in fact, did that, or at least show that they did that through their reports for a couple of years, may have dialed back on that now, but that was not, from your perspective, either wasn't necessarily happening like it needed to, or just the fact that they were wrapping products under this umbrella, this green umbrella, just didn't square up for you.
1: Yeah. I mean, ultimately the concern I have is that most of that work was marketing and PR, by which I mean that actually nothing in the real world changes. It's almost a status quo. It's a drug. It lulls us into accepting the status quo because we feel like something's getting done even though it's not. And the reason it's not getting done is because the reason we don't have as much capital going to green causes as we need is pretty simply because the incentives aren't there. It's too profitable to make money in fossil fuels, at least relative to what we need for that to be as a society. One way to address that is to say, well, if you want less capital flowing to an activity that is less desirable in the eyes of the public, then you make it less profitable. That's exactly what a carbon tax does, or a price on carbon, right? It says, okay, well, you can't get away with ignoring the cost of pollution you're creating. The science is real. I don't give a shit if Someone says I don't believe the science. Like if you have an iPhone, you believe in the science. At this point, you know we know that that's real. We know that people are polluting and passing on a cost that future generations will have to deal with. I mean, people alive today, younger people are going to have to deal with it. And we need to do something about that. And those ideas have existed for ages. The problem is they can't get implemented. And they often can't get implemented because the political system is completely deadlocked. So you have a bunch of business leaders like Larry Fink who are standing up and saying, hey, we've got the solution. It's this ESG stuff. In practice, when you actually look at what they're doing, behind the scenes, they're using marketing and lobbying. To delay systemic regulations like a carbon tax, often through the industry trade groups or the latest sort of the Inflation Reduction Act or whatever it's called, that you know, was getting significant opposition from the business roundtable, who claims to believe in stakeholder capitalism, from the Chamber of Commerce, from all of these organizations. And then at the same time, they're out there peddling their own solution that, like, hey, buy this thing. And there are a bunch of products, they cannot change the underlying mechanics of the system because. Ultimately, capital does flow to where the most profitable opportunities are. And that always happens because everybody making capital allocation decisions usually is doing it with someone else's money. And it's core to the principal agent problem in capitalism that, like, you cannot just let them go and spend on what they want. Do you really want your PM or your banker designing society? I'm not sure I care what their values are. Their job is to focus on value, and that's measured in dollars. And if you have an entire system built, You know, links in the chain where everybody is financially incentivized and legally obligated to focus on dollar value and maximize it, you end up in a situation where they are forced to exploit all kinds of loopholes, whether it's not paying the cost of pollution, evading taxes, and so on and so forth. That's a systemic problem. And I would argue that leadership today, business leaders, it's not even that they can solve this problem and they can't. I would argue that they can't, but they're lying and saying that they can so that they can sell you a bunch of ESG stuff. And it's because all of their incentives are very short term.
0: Let's get into some of the solutions. You write a lot about a carbon tax, which is effectively a consumption tax as one of the only ways to change behavior of billions of people, which we need. We don't need 100 million people to change their behavior. We don't need the United States to change its behavior. We need all countries to change the behavior. Is a carbon tax even realistic at the scale that you're talking about?
1: The question around the design of the policies is an important one, but I would even zoom out. I think carbon tax or price on carbon in some form is almost inevitable. And I think a lot of senior business leaders kind of know that behind the scenes, that something like that will happen, but they think it's politically unpalatable right now. I think the fundamental challenge that we face today is not even about consumption tax or this policy or that policy, because ultimately one way or another, you actually read the details. It looks like we as a society have built a way of living that borrows against the prospects of future generations. That happens when you build a $5 trillion energy industry based on fossil fuels, and then all of a sudden, scientists tell you, well, all that capex you put in and all that know-how and everything you've done, the land, the rights you bought, you probably can't exploit that the way you want to. And We have to build an entire new system that's going to require innovation and scaling and so on and so forth. Is it doable? Of course. Is capitalism the right model? To address that? Yes, I think so. But it's not going to happen by magic because it's going to require sacrifice. It is probably true that Big Mac's going to cost a bit more, travel's going to cost a bit more. Hopefully, we can achieve that kind of sacrifice those changes in a way that just doesn't put the burden on the communities that already are strained. But what I think really needs to happen is ultimately a bunch of serious regulation that internalizes the externalities, to use economic theory parlance and changes the incentives of the players in the system. We have not seen that yet.
0: Is anybody doing this right? Are there any countries out there or markets, marketplaces, where you see this happening the way it should happen and the way that actually has potential to, let's just take the green part of it, help reduce climate change, help turn around some of these issues that we have right now in the environment? Any countries or anybody that's actually got it right?
1: There are definitely sectors of the market where people are doing things that we need more of. So I gave the example before, if yours is a public markets fund that's just rearranging baskets of shares already traded in secondary public markets, that has no real impact and is probably unethical to sell under the idea that it does and is anyway a placebo and dangerous. But private vehicles that will invest in fresh funding for an innovator, so let's take a Climate Tech VC, there's definitely additionality in that because if you invest from that fund into hundred million dollars to back some new entrepreneur. And she has figured out a way to build some great new carbon capture and storage. You making that investment changes the world because if you didn't do it, maybe then she wouldn't have had the tools to scale it and the world would be a different place. So there is a subset of things that are interesting. I think it's less defined by geography and more by the type of investment it is, number one. Number two, I would say that certain countries are doing it a little bit better than others, But some part of that is determined by the business culture and how much they care about these things in Europe. Clearly, they lean more towards it and I think are a bit more ahead of the curve in thinking about the fact that this needs to be robust and real than it is in North America today, which feels a bit like the Wild West. And I'd say that certain governments are thinking very honestly about how can we work with industry to create credible goals. So to give you an example, in Singapore, people in government, they said, listen, we don't have a net zero plan. That's public yet. And I said, why? And they said, it's not because they're not thoughtful. It's not because they don't believe in climate change. Because they said, look, we don't like to put our name on something unless we know we can achieve it. We have a plan to get there. The problem, I think, in Western democracies today is that people are so short-term oriented that no one really even feels on the hook for what's going to happen in 2030. The average CEO tenure is five years. That's despite the fact, or probably linked to the fact, that CEOs get paid higher than they've ever gotten paid. And it's 320 times the industry average industry worker. So they're not really focused on 2030, much less 2050, because we are going to make their money before the decade's out. And the politicians are focused on the next electoral cycle. There are governments that are doing it well, but to be honest, right now, democracies are doing a terrible job of it because they don't actually have people at the wheel who really think they need to plan for 2050.
0: Let's get back to you. Let's get to the Rumi initiative, the company you founded, the nonprofit you founded to try to teach financial literacy to kids, where you ultimately ended up after your stint at BlackRock. Tell us about what you're doing there.
1: So Rumi is something that's actually probably the coolest thing I'm working on right now because effectively, Rumi started out by saying, we're going to deliver free learning to smartphones around the world. The reason we did that is because I'd worked years earlier on investments to bring mobile phones into emerging markets even, places like Kenya, where my parents were born and raised. And you could see that it was the great equalizing force. If people didn't have landlines, some did, some didn't. Everyone went to mobile phones, and then suddenly everyone's using the same up-to-date technology. And so as smartphones have grown around the world, there's now six and a half billion, we saw a lot of potential to use that as infrastructure to equalize the playing field for learning. Because a smartphone is, you have high-quality learning, it quizzes, it's interactive, it's adaptive. The team started building that. And today, the Perumi solution is based on something called microlearning. It's you learn in five or six minute snippets quickly on your mobile phone. Research shows that people get a dopamine rush when they refresh social media. That's what social media tries to get you on is refreshing it and you get that hit. Well, you also get a dopamine rush from learning a new skill or concept. And so we took the model. and We said, we're going to give you a dopamine rush for something good for your mental health. And then we started taking cues from social media. Animated GIFs, memes, all kinds of things that keep it fresh, interactive, so people they don't just get bored. And you, know, you can't have even two or three paragraphs of text on a phone unless it's a New York Times reader is very committed, because most younger people, they're off. They're used to the TikTok algorithm. And so, what's really incredible about it is that during the pandemic, it exploded in growth. It is now hit a million learners a couple of months ago. It's growing exponentially. So, it is doubling every four or five months. But the coolest part is that it actually has learning gains. So 22% learning gains versus the baseline. And here's the crazy part, 88% of the learners say that it's a positive replacement for social media time.
0: We will link to the Rumi Initiative in the show notes, as well as your essays on Medium. Tarek Fancy, thanks so much for joining The Green Investor. Really good to talk to you.
1: Thanks, Caleb. Great to be here.
0: To Witt, Bloomberg News reported this week that the Securities and Exchange Commission is probing funds to find out if managers of ESG investments are trading away their votes on sustainability issues. According to unnamed sources in Bloomberg's report, lawyers at the SEC are asking firms offering ESG funds about share lending practices, and if before corporate elections the shares are being brought back in-house. The U.S. regulator wants to know if investors are being properly informed of such activities. This latest inquiry expands regulators' crackdown on exchange-traded funds and mutual funds that market them themselves as sustainable. The SEC is concerned they are being marketed inaccurately and their abilities to support the environment and society don't match their claims. The great reckoning, folks, is upon us, but out of this kind of shakeup comes dynamic investing opportunities. It's time for Green Facts, that part of the show where we get to unpack dynamic facts, figures, and far-out stories in the world of green investing. And this week, relics of the distant past are appearing on our shores as ultra-low river levels around the world are exposing sunken artifacts. The River Po in Italy is at its lowest level in 70 years due to months without rainfall and slower flows from melting snow that wreckage from World War II, including a German ship and cargo tanks, are being unsurfaced for the first time since that war. In Rome, a bridge has been exposed that is thought to have been built during Emperor Nero's rule in the first century. This summer's extremely hot and dry conditions in Italy forced the government to declare a state of emergency in July. And at Lake Mead here in the United States, the massive reservoir at the iconic Hoover Dam, it has shrunk to a fraction of its former size and has revealed everything from sunken boats to dead bodies. The human remains discovered at the site include a body and a barrel, according to the U.S. National Park Service. The cause of death is still under investigation. History is coming back to haunt us as our rivers run dry. It's time to unpack the acronym, that part of the show where we get to deconstruct the alphabet soup that is green investing. And this week, we're going into tax law for a simple yet important acronym, and it's ITC. An investment tax credit, or a tax credit overall, is a dollar-for-dollar reduction in the amount of income tax you would otherwise owe. For example, claiming a $1,000 federal tax credit reduces your federal income taxes due by... $1,000. So, what is a federal solar tax credit and why are we talking about investment tax credits? Well, the federal residential solar energy tax credit is a tax credit that can be claimed on federal income taxes for a percentage of the cost of a solar photovoltaic system. The system must be placed in service during the tax year and generate electricity for a home inside the United States. In December of 2020, Congress passed an extension of the ITC, the investment tax credit behind this, which provides a 26% credit for systems installed during the years 2020 through 2022 and 22% for systems installed in 2023. The tax credit would have expired starting in 2024 unless Congress renewed it, but along came the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022, which was just signed into law by President Biden. The Inflation Reduction Act includes thousands of dollars in tax credits and rebates for consumers who buy electric vehicles, install solar panels, or make other energy-efficient upgrades to their homes. In all, consumers may qualify for up to $10,000 or more in tax breaks and rebates depending on the scope of their purchases. Let's go out this week, as we always do, celebrating this week in environmental history. And it was on August 10th, which was really last week, 1971, that socially responsible investing went mainstream as the Pax World Fund, the first broadly diversified mutual fund to invest in companies based on social and environmental criteria, was launched in Washington, D.C. by Luther Tyson and Jack Corbett. Today, the Pax World Fund and Pax World Management, its parent company, are owned by Impact's Asset Management, which acquired it in 2018. The PAX World Funds are still trading, and the large-cap PAX World Fund has about $1.4 billion in assets under management. Its top holdings, by the way, Apple, Microsoft, and Alphabet. Thanks for joining us this week. As always, and special thanks to Tarek Fancy for his candid interview. We'll link to his essays on Medium.com, as well as to the transcript of our conversation and all the reports we cited. You'll find those links in the show notes wherever you get your green on, and on Investopedia.com slash The Green Investor Podcast. And until we meet again, keep it green.